the Bible says that a great change is coming to the universe. And it's easy to, to forget that, to overlook that, to think about other things than that great day that the scriptures everywhere are consistently promising us. It's easy to think that the world is going to kind of just keep bumping along in the way that it always has. In fact, uh, I think that all of us have had a, a kind of example or experience of, of late that shows us that sometimes there are great and shocking things that can happen that really throw us off, that show us that the world doesn't necessarily always just keep bumping along. If you were to ask me two years ago, I'm a big basketball fan, if you were to ask, tell me that there was a way, other than players refusing to play, that the NBA could be shut down within a matter of days, I would have thought that was laughable. And yet when COVID-19 hit, within three days they went from, yeah, we'll work through this, to we're not going to be playing any games for a long time. It changed. Everything changed. You know, the consistencies of this life can make us spiritually drowsy and forget the fact that changes can and do come. Uh, it, it's kind of like a drowsy driver. Have you ever driven while you're tired? You ever had that experience? It's hard. It's hard to stay awake. Sometimes life can kind of feel like this. You're on a journey. You're going somewhere. Sometimes you forget where you're going. Uh, maybe it's like when you're on the interstate late at night, you're in danger as you're a drowsy driver of driving off a cliff and perishing. How do you stay awake while you're driving, drowsy? Turn up the radio? Put down the window? Turn, you turn up the, the music, you start singing with it. Maybe you, uh, in that moment, decide that you, you need to sort of slap your face. Maybe you stick your head outside of the window. Maybe you drink a Red Bull. But you do kind of whatever it takes to keep you awake to be able to make it to the end. But how do you wake yourself up spiritually when you're, you're in danger of being drowsy and going off the road? Well, Peter has an answer this morning. But we're back and I remember this series in 2 Peter 3, 1 to 7, where Peter is actually shifting gears in the letter. And he's trying to stir up or shaken or shake us, awaken us, Christians, by way of reminding the Christians he spoke to of the fiery end that awaits the false teachers that he's been identifying in chapter 2. You'll remember that these are false teachers who he has shown. Uh, they are doing a couple of things in their teaching. One is they're denying the return of Christ. And then second, not only are they denying that return of Christ, uh, but we're told that as a result, they are saying it doesn't really matter how you live today. So if there's no last day, then live it up every day. Well, Peter, as he's facing death, he writes this letter, and he, he wants to make sure that Christians remember to follow the way of Christ. That's the right way. That's the way that gets you home to live with the Father forever. He doesn't want you to get diverted from the path. He says there's a great coming day of the Lord that you need to be ready for. Now, as we look at chapter 3, you'll notice in verse 1, he begins by speaking to the beloved. And I think that that marks that he is beginning a new section in 2 Peter. As I said before, it signals a kind of new movement in this letter where Peter is addressing his listeners as beloved again and again. You can notice in verse 1, 8, 14, and 17, he continues to address the 
beloved. He's speaking about the false teachers, but he's speaking to Christians. And I think that's important to know that though he is speaking about the false teachers, he says, what I'm saying is important for you to hear as the beloved of God. These false teachers are kind of a foil that he's using to make his point to these Christians. It's kind of like the dad of a girl one time that I was dating and I went into his home and he said, hey, let me talk to you real quick. And he was cleaning his shotgun and he said, you know, I'm just really glad you're not like the other guys that I usually have to explain how, how good I am with the shotgun, how, how you know, it, it would break my heart and make me very angry if anybody ever hurt my little girl. I'm just glad you're not like that guy. I don't have to do that. I caught what he was doing. He was saying, don't be that guy. See, those guys were a kind of foil. He wanted to speak to me, but he was giving me a message through them. Now, the only other place that Peter uses this word beloved is in 2 Peter 1.17, where God the Father declared Jesus to be his beloved son. These Christians, they, they are beloved. They love one another because they are first loved by God in Christ. That's good news, isn't it? God loves them. God loves us who are in Christ. We are the beloved of God and we love one another. Christian, be encouraged that you're loved by God. Even before we talk about the wrath that's coming, we need to be reminded that we are not like them. We are those who are loved by God. He has a future and a hope for us. But here, Peter sees reminding Christians of the fiery judgment of God on that last day is, is good for those who are loved by God. It's good for them to be reminded of that day of judgment. That's what leaving Christ to follow scoffers would lead to, perishing, not good. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this, and you can write this down. It's that hiding and abiding in Christ is the only way to escape God's fiery judgment on the last day. Now that's not direct, but it's implicit. We're going to see that later as we look at this in a Christ-centered kind of way. But first, notice that Peter says we need the Bible to awaken us to a sincere mind in verses 1 and 2. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere mind by way of reminder. So notice first here, he is waking them up to a pure mind. A pure mind. Now, as he reminds us that he's writing his second letter, you have to ask, well, what was the first letter? Some have said that we, we lost the first letter. Uh, others have looked at this and said, well, I, I think that Second Peter is actually a combination of a number of letters, and First Peter is the first, I mean, uh, chapter one is the first, uh, the first letter he's speaking of. It was later combined and edited to include chapter three, and so chapter three is really just referring to one as a letter that he was speaking of. But I, I go with the majority of scholars here, and I'm just going to move on from here saying that I think First Peter is the first letter. Again, notice Peter writes this letter as the other one to stir up Christians, and he's doing this to shake or arouse them, kind of like you would do to awaken someone who's in a, a deep sleep. He's, he's saying you need to shake or stir them to cause them to, to be aware of what's going on. In fact, Mark uses the same word 
in Mark 4 as he's describing the way that the disciples fearfully woke up Jesus when they were in the midst of that great storm. They, they awoke him. Now, what does he want them to be woke to, though? Well, it's a sincere mind. Notice he says that clearly. See, Peter wants to awaken them to a, a pure, unmixed, alloy-less, undivided thinking that is honest, straightforward, and true. But did you catch what Peter's saying here? He's saying, beloved Christians, don't throttle on sincerity of mind. Did you hear that? Christians, loved by God, we do not throttle on sincerity of mind. In other words, if you just don't do anything, if you don't do anything spiritually, you're not just going to remain pure of mind. There's a, a kind of way in which spiritual entropy kicks in when we are still, when we are complacent, when we are not spiritually active, in which we begin to start to slowly become impure in mind, even as a new creation, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, living with the apostles who witnessed the transfiguration, these Christians still needed to be both shaken and stirred into a sincere mind. Don't you think that you need to too? I think I do. I need to be reminded. I know so experientially. Why? Well, their problem was clearly false teachers living in a corrupt world, fighting sin. All of that meant that each of them needed mental stirring for their spiritual good. Now, because we don't throttle in sincerity of mind either, our minds, we need to know, are constantly being bombarded with an unceasing flow of images and experiences that can distract us subtly from confidence in the gospel and Christ, the Christ of the gospel. And so in Competing Spectacles, a, a book I recently read by Tony Ranke, he says that we live in a world that is just full of spectacles, maybe more spectacles than any generation before us has had put before them. Maybe that's historically elitist, but the way that he argues is that there is one great spectacle, Jesus Christ on the cross that should consume us in our lives. But because we have so many other spectacles competing for our attention, like CNN, TikTok, Twitter, Netflix, newspapers, Facebook, and it goes on and on, we are constantly bombarded with images and thoughts that are competing for attention on Christ. And he says we need to be careful because what we watch, we are not spectators that are able to view it without it shaping us. In fact, he goes as far as to say we become what we watch. So what are we being shaped into by the things that we are looking at? But catch this. It's not just the media and the social media that is constantly vying for our attention, looking to shape us and give us Minds that are impure, that are not constrained and shaped by the biblical narrative. There are other things that can cause us to go drowsy spiritually. Common, ordinary experiences of life can cause us to grow drowsy towards the reality of the gospel. M maybe you can connect with some of these. Unceasing pain. An unending debt. A monotonous job. Or the 
restless pursuit of a better job, a love interest, a scholarship, an athletic trophy, or, or simply more. Not things that are bad in of themselves, but just leave yourself to pursuing these things and they turn into, over time, not just good things to be had, but God's to be worshipped. We can grow, we can grow dow, drowsy towards the gospel. Are, are you with me? Do you, do you see what I'm talking about? The way that we can just sort of subtly shift into being non-pure, insincere of mind? So how do we stir up a, a sincere mind? How do you do that? How do you shake yourself to sleep? What is the spiritual way to stick your, your head outside of the window as you're driving 80 miles, oh, 75, 70, down, down the road and trying to stay awake? Well, Peter tells us. Peter tells us that it's with the reminder in verse 2 that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he says, here's how you, you do it. You remember what the Bible says about obeying Jesus. Now, Peter appealed to the Old Testament prophets before as they predict Christ's last day judgment. And his personal experience, Peter told us about how he heard God's voice from heaven at the transfiguration. He, he said that this is how we know that our theology of the last days is trustworthy. We received it from God. That's what, what he says in chapter one. But here again, Peter is pointing to the Old Testament prophets. He says they are reliable testimony to Christ's return. So look at the Old Testament prophets and what they said about Jesus coming back. But also, did you notice that he adds the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles? See, Peter seems to use the singular, the commandment, to identify the moral requirements that are placed on believers by Christ. He's just He's lumping them together into the commandment, the word that is from Christ. And much, be, much could be said here. But I want to make a few comments on these verses before we move on. First, Peter believes Christians need the Old and New Testament to stir them up to a sincere mind. D did you notice that? What do you need to stir up? You need your Old Testament, you need your New Testament, you need a whole Bible. Don't follow preachers and teachers who say you don't need the Old Testament. As Alistair Begg says, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. But also, second, did you catch that Jesus requires obedience from his people? See, grace doesn't exempt us from obedience. There is a, a, a kind of form of professed Christianity that says that because we are under the grace of Jesus Christ, that we no longer need to obey him, as though obedience is an optional amenity to Christianity. But Jesus is Lord. And you say, well, what is he Lord of? Everything. And you're like, in my life, not just your life. Everything in heaven, the spiritual realm, and on earth. He is completely, indubitably sovereign. We must obey him. And third, did you catch what the apostles speak with the authority of Christ? The apostles, they are, they are claiming here, Peter, as an apostle, saying, I speak in such a way that I'm delivering you the mail of Jesus Christ. So that what you receive from me is from him. See, some take this in a very strange way. Some of you might have a, a red-letter Bible this morning. Anybody have a red-letter Bible? It's okay. Like, you don't have to tell anybody. It's not a bad thing. But it could be. It could be a bad thing because 
It could be that as you're looking at your Bible and you're seeing the red letters, there are some red letter Christians who say either A, the red letters have more authority than the black letters, or I only listen to the red letters and the other letters are not important. And I would say that what Jesus would say is, you're not reading the red letters right. It's all from me. All scripture is inspired by God. The words that you receive from the apostles and the prophets, they are fully God's word. And all of us, all of it must be understood in light of who Christ is today and what he has done and what he has accomplished. So we don't need to be red letter Bible Christians. We need to receive the whole word. Now, let me ask you a question as you look to this. Doesn't this seem to say that we as Christians need a steady diet of the whole Bible to stir our minds up and awaken us regularly to sincerity because we can forget God's word. Doesn't it seem like that's pretty clear? Like that's what he's saying. That we get distracted by life and we get caught up in sin and we forget God's word and we need regular reminders. Let me ask you a question just to ask yourself this morning. You don't have to say this out loud. Might get weird if everybody's talking to themselves, but here's a question to ask internally, okay? Do you stir yourself up enough to a sincere mind? Are, are you doing it enough? Are you, are you doing it at all? Are, are you not reading your Bible all week and hoping that you come in on Sunday morning and hear the preaching of the word and that something magical will happen that has not happened all during the week? Who helps you get stirred up? When you find your mind growing drowsy towards living wholeheartedly for Christ, where are you turning? Do you turn to the Bible and the means of grace that the Bible commends to, to help you obey Christ? Well, this would be a great time just to pray and ask God to use his word this morning to stir you afresh, to awaken you to a sincere mind that changes you, not just for today, but for the day after day that comes as you leave from this place. Second, Peter says, no, the Bible warns of scoffers denying Jesus' return in the last days. No, no, the Bible, one of the ways that he prepares people for that last day is this warning that we've seen throughout history in the scriptures that there would be scoffers on the last day. Don't be surprised by him. Now, I take this knowing here to signal the reason Christians need repetitive remembrance of what the Bible says about Christ coming and obeying him in verse 3. See, the, the Bible warns that scoffers signaled the last day. Peter clearly connects mocking the return of Jesus with a, a shady moral life in, the, in this verse. Notice in verse 3 he says, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, here's what they should know. First of all, if properly stirred by the Scriptures... You need to know this first of all, if properly stirred by the scriptures, the Bible and Jesus both warned that scoffers living immoral lives would come more and more as the last day approached. And they would be there during the last days that would culminate in the last day. See, scoffers, they, they don't merely debate the truth. That's not their style. It's not just to disagree with it. No, these scoffers, that they go a step further. They mock, belittle and deride the truth. They follow their sinful desires rather than the will of God. That's what it means when it says they follow their own sinful desires. They're not following the way of Christ. They're following their wants rather than Christ's wants. 
and their way leads to perishing, just like the scoffers of the Old Testament. Well, the Christian way of life, it leads somewhere different, doesn't it? It leads to eternal life and joy at the right hand of the Father. See, these scoffers receive a good bit of attention in the Bible. If, if you're thinking about what does the Bible have to say about scoffers, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, David, you'll remember he opens in Psalm 1 saying, Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And why? Verse 6, because they perish. They face the judgment of the great king in Psalm 2, who's going to come and judge the living and the dead and the nations. Proverbs speaks about scoffers. He says they are proud. They cause division. They face condemnation. They burn down a city. So here they are left for worldly desires rather than they are living for worldly desires rather than heavenly treasure. These false teachers, they look like the scoffers and the bad shepherds of Ezekiel 34 who beat and eat the sheep. And in Matthew 24, 5, Jesus warned of these kinds of people. He says, many will come in my name in the last days. And they will claim, I am the Christ, and, I, and, and they will deceive many. And even though Peter says scoffers will come in this verse, I believe like before, what he's saying is, we are seeing the fulfillment of what's been promised in the past. The future is here. The future is now. We are in the last days as evidenced by the scoffers who are around us and who will be around us. See, here we, we find that these scoffers are telling us the last days have arrived. Uh, similarly, 1 John 2.18 says, it is not just that the last day has arrived, but the last hour. He says, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists are here. Now, Pentecost and Acts 2 mark the beginning of the prophesied last days that are unfolding. But Peter wants us to read verse 4. In light of this description of these false teachers as scoffers. So he's going to give us the, the question that they're asking, but he wants us to understand it is not a kind of question of curiosity or question seeking learning. It is a mocking question. So notice, scoffers here, they mock the return of Christ because of past experience in verse 4. And to be clear, Peter told us in 2.18 to 22 that these scoffers claim to follow the faith. But here they mock the specific teaching of the faith, the return of Christ on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Now he says, verse 4, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Now this was likely taking place just two-ish decades after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But here they are mocking this promised return of Jesus. They got tired of waiting just two decades in. Now, you'll notice that word for coming. In the Greek, it comes from parousia, a word for the coming of Christ on the last day. Now, hang with me. Asking questions about the last day or eschatology, it's not bad in and of itself. That's not what Peter's saying. It's a good thing to, to ask questions. It's a bad thing to try to speculate in ways that cause divisions. But these scoffers, they are asking questions to actually mock the idea 
that Jesus is coming back bodily to set things right. He says, they say, and this kind of explains what they were saying, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, uh, some have taken fathers here to speak of the first generation of Christians, including the apostles. It's kind of fathers. But what's interesting, and I think helpful to understand what he's talking about, is that in the New Testament, we never see fathers used in that way. It's always used to talk about the patriarchs of the faith, like Abraham and Isaac. And, and that seems to be what he's talking about when he speaks of looking back to, they look back to these fathers, those fathers of the faith, and the scoffers seem to have taught that since the days of these patriarchs, history has just kind of been bumping along without God's intervention. Like, it just keeps on happening the same way day after day. It's a little bit like Groundhog's Day. Like, you know, it's like, oh, same day again. They mock the idea of Jesus intervening in the future with divine justice. Now, to me, this sounds a little bit like a, a deistic kind of view of God as a, a great watchmaker who created creation sort of as a watch and then just stepped back and let it just kind of tick by itself, not intervening or interceding to act within it. Interestingly, during Peter's day, Epicureans denied providence or any not notion of a knowable God acting in or on the universe. I don't think that's what's being pointed to here, but it seems something like that. They're denying that, that God intervenes, that he is going to actually change or bring justice or actually bring about a change in the way that the universe operates. I kind of like this word that he uses for death, though. Did you notice the fathers fell asleep? It's an interesting word. It's a metaphor for death. But as I was reading, I found that one commentator, Doug Moo, was speaking of this, and he noted that this metaphor for death seems to be only reserved for believers who die. That it doesn't signal a kind of soul sleep when Christians die, but seems to, to amplify the notion that death is temporary for those who die in Christ. This reminds me of a song, a hymn by H.A. Caesar Milan, It Is Not Death to Die. You know, It Is Not Death to Die. A beautiful song if you haven't heard it. Friends, that's a song that only Christians can sing with sincerity of mind. Only the pure heart of a Christian can sing that it is not death to die. Notice here, though, he gives three evidences, Peter does, that God does intervene. That's our third point. He, he brings three evidences of God's intervention, three, three evidences that the scoffers overlooked in verses 5 to 7. Uh, you'll notice the word that he uses in verse 5, for deliberately, is an interesting word. It can also mean maintain. And, and the NASB translate verse 5 this way, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That has a different ring to it. As though they're not deliberately ignoring this evidence. Instead, it's though it's escaping their attention. They can't see it. They, they don't see it. They're blind to it, in a sense. I think this seems to better communicate Peter's attempt in verses 5 to 7 as he's highlighting these three evidences of God's intervention that scoffers overlooked in this claim that all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, creation itself reveals the first contradiction. Did you catch that in verse 5? He, he says quickly, and the earth was formed, he says, uh, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, 
that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. So they say God has not intervened since creation. The false teachers do. Peter says, fine, let's start with creation because that's where you began. Let's start at the beginning of a very good place to begin. Have you read how God intervened to create all things by the power of his word in Genesis 1? Do you remember that? It's in the Bible. Good place to start. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, you'll remember there where we are told, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was what? Good. He spoke creation into to being, and And it was a good thing that he made. And over six days, God creates all things, culminating in the creation of Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of his good creation. See, the water language, I know it looks strange in this text, but it's not claiming that water is the basic element of life like others, like Thales of Miletus did. That's not what he's saying. It looks like that, but that's not what's happening. In fact, I think commentator Richard Bauckham is is helpful here. He he argues that the phrase out of water here is actually according with the kind of imagery that Genesis would have been written in and also the kind of imagery that that Peter would have been familiar with. And and it's the kind of image that you would find in Near Eastern myth that the physical heavens and earth emerged out of a primeval ocean. And God pushed back the waters of the, the chaos above the firmament and beneath the surrounding earth. So the second phrase, through the water, it's loosely imaging the way that God removed the waters and bringing forth creation by the power of his word. See, creation began with God initiating and intervening to create by the power of his word. That's how the whole thing started. God's intervention. God acting in time and space and in creation. Now, there may also be a sense in which Peter here is hinting at God's continual power in creation, sustaining the waters being held back in verse 5, because notice the second evidence he gives there. He gives in in verse, uh, he goes on to give in verse 6 the second evidence that God intervened again with water, sending the flood of Genesis 6 to 9. Now, Peter just said that God created the word, the world by his word and by means of water. If you'll notice, in parallel fashion here, it's by God's word and by means of water that he later destroyed the world. Now here again, Peter is picking up on the the Noah story that he mentioned in chapter 2. It happens in Genesis 6 to 9. And you'll remember there that God looked down and saw that every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of men was only evil continually. Not a pure mind, right? So God spoke again, and the waters they lose are flooded, the earth wiping away all of them. And only Noah and his family, eight souls, survived. Now, the idea here is that God brought about what one author calls a cosmic catastrophe. It was a a catastrophe of cosmic proportions. And he did this to judge sinful humanity, which affected and changed heaven and earth in Noah's day. See, the the world perished, but Noah and and the world was not annihilated. There were survivors in this perishing. Yet, 
there seems to be substantial difference in the way the heavens and the earth are described before Genesis 6 to 9 and after. In fact, as you read Genesis 7 to 11, you'll notice that during the flood, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. The earth looked like a different place in that day, it seems like. And God's judgment there actually changed heaven and earth. He gave us a rainbow in the sky, which literally is him putting down his war bow as a promise that he would never destroy us by flood again. He would never use water in that way. See, I, I think here we just need to be reminded what Peter's trying to remind his people. If you read the Bible, we, we'll see that our, our minds, our perspective is so small, limited, so infinite compared to our transcendent, eternal, all-seeing God. We need to regularly in our, our infant small places, our finite small places in life, be reminded, reminded of the grandeur of God and what he's doing, not just in history, but in redemptive history. God is at work. Things are not as they have always been, and they are not what they always will be. God's trustworthy voice, the voice of the unchanging God, it brings clarity to the confusion of this world that is always shifting and shady. And it's in the midst, amidst this, the monotonies and the catastrophes of this life that can lull us to sleep that we need to hear spiritually from God in his word. And Peter says, don't sleep on God's promise of the greater coming cosmic catastrophe. The flood was bad. Something worse is coming. See, Peter's third evidence cast our eyes now from the past to the future, how all things end. And here you'll notice that in this third evidence, he is showing us that we will not face a flood of water. God promised that, but there is coming a flood of fire. Evidence 3, in verse 7, God says he will intervene with fire in the heavens and the earth. Now, verse 7 is saying, it says this, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So don't miss this imagery. God, God's word is intervening and active in a way that scoffers they don't see. And just as the prophets and Jesus himself testified, God preserves heaven and earth and sustains them even with an eye to them being stored up for fire. Did, did you catch that? This, this, whole, this whole world, heavens and earth, he's sustaining it, but he knows there's coming a day where it's going to be purged with fire. This storing up word that he uses here in verse 7 is fascinating. It, it's the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 6, 19 to 20, where he tells believers, his disciples, do not store up your treasures on earth, right? They'll be destroyed, but store them up in heaven. Here we find that storing up means keeping something safe, something valuable or treasured. And here it's the heavens and the earth which are being guarded until the day of judgment, which will result in the destruction of the ungodly. A commentator, Tom Schreiner, speaking of this, says the reference to fire in this text is Surprising, since nowhere else are we told that the world will be, will be destroyed by fire. Now, there's a lot of fire imagery in the Bible. A lot of judgment by fire. Uh, we know that it's spoken of consistently throughout 
the Bible. And we do see a litany of texts that speak of God's fiery judgment on sinful humanity. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 22, or Isaiah 66, 15 to 16, or Malachi 4, 1. Uh, if you look at Malachi 4, 1, it says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Some say Peter developed a fiery judgment from teaching based on the Stoics of his day. Others point to post-biblical writers. Or he simply developed it from the fiery judgments of the Old Testament that we just read. But I take it more likely that he received it from Jesus himself. He heard teaching from Christ. Uh, and you might say, well, like, wow, that's... That's like a scary thing. Are we sure it says this? I think it's pretty clear it says this. Uh, I was reading Francis Churchin on this just uh, last night, and he was like, yeah, one thing we don't doubt is this is going to happen because the Bible says it. And then he gives his version of the statement, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. See, Peter wants this reality of the last day to stir us up to a sincere mind ready for the last day. So what I want to do is I want to just close with some quick applications to stir us up to think rightly about today and the last day. Here's, here's the first one. We need to be mindful that this text does not teach that fire will annihilate the present heavens and earth. I don't, I don't see that as, as what's being said here. See, I believe that what's happening is that God is going to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. What happens after the fire in the world will be different. The, the heavens and the, the earth all of it will be different than before the fire. It's going to be like the day of the flood, but even greater. He's going to finish what he started there, bringing about a purity that reaches not just the creation itself, but when we step off the ark of Jesus, we're not going to fall quickly back into sin. We have been saved forever and, and had sin removed from ever through the purging of this fire that is coming. See, some argue this fire annihilates all that, that is and that God starts over with new and better stuff, but I take it that this fire purifies and signals a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation free from the corruption of man's sin, where God's people and God's creation are free to glorify him fully in the way that we were intended to. It's the consummation of what God had planned for us. In other words, the good plans that he made us for, they have not been thwarted even by our own sin. God wins. He, he brings about the things, the glorious promises that he promised. You know, the, the normal drone of life can cause us to think that God's just not going to be able to pull this off. And what Peter says is, it's coming in a huge way, a cosmic way. Get ready. Everything will change. God does not change. Second, Christian, don't forget this day. Don't, don't forget the day of Jesus' return, the day of judgment. Don't forget it. It's easy to forget it. You might have already forgot it, but don't forget it. Now, how do you forget the coming of a, a cosmic catastrophe, you ask? It's actually pretty simple. I myself am pretty good at it. Just get me started talking about basketball. Basketball is not bad, but quickly I tend to forget the things that are most important. I start to get worried about, is my team going to win the next game? How did they not win more successfully the last game they played? Are they going to get that next trophy? Does it really matter when Jesus is coming back? You know, it's easier than you think without reminders to forget that day. We are finite, forgetful beings, not to mention that we are living in a world that is corrupt, not to mention that we still fight sin. 
easy to forget the most important things. We grow tired. Sometimes when we get exhausted, it is harder to be reminded of the fact that Jesus is coming back so that every moment matters. We get distracted by good things and bad things and bored when nothing's going on. We need to fill our minds with Bible such that Charles Spurgeon could say of us what he said of John Bunyan. That he was so full of the Bible that if you were to prick him, he'd, he'd bleed Biblane. Some of us would bleed TikTok. We need to bleed Bible. Hope in the Bible. Hope and confidence in the return of Christ. Be consumed with the Bible so you're not consumed on the last day. Third, doesn't this just cause you to want to share Christ with others, Christian? I mean, when I, I read this this week, I was just like, kind of undone. There, there's nowhere to go to escape. I have friends that I love who do not love Jesus. I've got family who might not love Jesus, don't love Jesus, some do love Jesus. And as I, I'm reading this, I, I'm just reminded of the weight of what's coming. So easy to forget. So easy to, to lose that evangelistic edge because we've forgotten what's coming. The other day, one of my sons was saying, makes me sad, Dad, when there's someone that's really nice that I know doesn't love Jesus. Why? Because he knows what's coming. Of course, it would make us sad. It should make us sad if we even consider the terror that awaits our enemies on the face of the coming fire. I mean, that's a given, but, but I, I know what he means. When, when our minds are, are stirred about the coming fire, it ought to cause us in our hearts to yearn to see those around us saved. Right? Like, if you're a non-Christian here, I just want you to know like, there's nothing that excites us about that coming day for those who do not know Jesus. The justice is good. It's glorious. It's fierce. It's terrifying. And that would lead me to my third point for you who are a non-Christian. You know, the Bible speaks much of the fire of God's judgment on the last day. In fact, Isaiah 2 has this terrifying image of on that last day, uh, the fearful presence of the Lord coming and the, the splendor of his majesty arising on earth on this last day where all of those who were so proud in his absence, his apparent absent, though he saw everything going on, is now visible. He allows them to see his presence. And as he pulls back the curtain and they see him, they were so proud, but now they are terrified. They're running for their lives. And in that moment, when they thought nothing would change, they see that everything is about to change, and they flee. It says they seek to hide from him in caves and holes in the ground, but there's nowhere that they can flee from his presence. See, those who die outside of faith in Christ, they, they face the fire. They face hell when they die. They face the lake of fire on the last day when Christ restores all things. It's there that they're going to experience those who are not in Christ. And if that's you, this would be you, the eternal wrath of God in increasing measure. It's not just like you're punished and done. It's not like he just annihilates you and it's over. It is an eternal consequence and wrath of God being met on those who did not look to him. But here's the good news today. There is very good news, news that is only to be found in God's word. And that's this. There is a rock that you can hide under. There's a rock. 
The rock is Jesus, Jesus Christ. He is the one that you can run to and hide yourself in. You are not obedient enough to shade yourself and save you from the presence of God on the last day. Your goodness is not good enough. None of our goodness, all of our collective goodness is not good enough to meet God's standards. God doesn't grade on a curve. God is not going to on the last day say, well, man, I didn't see you standing next to Hitler, so you're fine. God says, all of you, all together are unrighteous. None of you are pure of heart in the way that you ought to be. Here's the beauty of Christ. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. He is our greatest fear, but he's also our greatest hope. He is the one, the rock, who came to die in your place on the cross for your sins. He lived a perfectly righteous life and then happily, sorrowfully, went to the cross for you to take on the punishment that you deserved so that you might be forgiven by God. He was forsaken so that you don't have to be, so that when God comes, you might be rescued from the incredible, eternal, the inescapable wrath of God. He did that in Christ. Christ did that for you who believe. When you put your faith in him, when you decide that my way of life is not working, it's not good enough to get me to the Father, then put your faith in Christ, turn from sin, and you will be forgiven. You will be one of those who are beloved by God. One of those who will be saved from the wrath of God to the love of the Father is not an enemy but as a son. That's what happens in Christ. He is the rock that we hide under on that last day. He is the rock that they should have been running to in Isaiah 2, the Messiah that was to come. That's why Colossians 3, 3 to 4 tells us this. He says, all those who have repented and believed the gospel and continue believing, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Are you hidden with Christ in God today? Are you ready for the last day? He is the only place to hide. If you haven't done that, talk to me, talk to another Christian today. We don't want you to leave unprepared for the last day. Let's pray.